This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore how One Mountain community is approaching a long-standing housing crisis. Plus, we hear about a 102-year-old World War II veteran who was awarded medals he'd earned but never received. I would like to say this is a timely presentation. It would depend on your definition of timely. And we'll hear details of a federal discrimination lawsuit against the world's largest meat processor, JBS. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. As the country continues to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, some business owners are reporting difficulty in finding enough employees to be able to accommodate the return of eager customers. The problem is even more pronounced in some of the state's mountain communities, including Estes Park, which we reported on in a recent episode. Now, experts say there are a number of reasons for the worker shortage, but one significant factor is a long-running housing crisis in parts of Colorado's high country. Earlier this month, travel leaders in Crested Butte posted a note on Facebook warning visitors to expect long waits and closures at short-staffed businesses. They asked for patience and kindness as the town grapples with the lack of attainable housing in the area. But leaders in the town appear poised to find creative solutions with a first-of-its-kind emergency housing declaration. And more communities in the high country are expected to follow suit. Here with more on this is Jason Blevins, a reporter for the Colorado Sun. Jason, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me here. Can you paint us a picture of what the housing crisis looks like among the mountain communities here? How long has it been going on? So this is not a new issue, but in the past year, a real estate boom, people moving to these communities full-time, and then a construction materials crisis. Like the perfect storm has really made the affordable housing issue really acute in these mountain towns. And this impacts businesses in town because it impacts workers. Correct. We are seeing restaurants and shops you know, closing early, closing for entire days, simply because they don't have the staffing to support the, the tourism and the, and the visitors that are, that are coming to the town. So it's become quite a critical issue in terms of a labor shortage. Everything almost boils back to this lack of housing. You write about this resolution in Crested Butte. Give us some of the particulars of that. They declared a local disaster emergency regarding affordable housing. Basically, it allows town leaders to kind of bypass the provisions in municipal code for example, they can, uh, you know, kind of really quickly approve residential type of development or residential conversions of maybe hotel rooms or short-term rentals into residential long-term housing. The council now can suspend certain municipal requirements for residential development. They have removed limits on camping and RV occupancy and private property inside the town. And it's really allowed the town to be more nimble and creative when it comes to quickly developing and providing housing for locals. Are there other mountain communities that are planning similar declarations? Yes. Briscoe and Summit County, it's on the table for them. You know, again, it's something that, one, we've got a lot of money that's about to pour into these communities in Colorado with some federal stimulus money and legislation that was passed this last session that really enables a lot of state and federal funds to flow into affordable housing. So ideally, these emergency declarations will amplify that issue, really put these communities in in sort of the front of the line when it comes to uh, possibly lining up for housing funds. For example, Summit County is on tap to get about $6 million in federal stimulus, and the emergency declaration will allow them to 
really quickly take that money and put it into housing on the ground immediately versus, you know, a prolonged process that requires them to put an RFP out, find a developer, you know, it could take a couple of years to really get that money into housing. On those emergency disaster declarations, they are enabling communities to come up with solutions, but it doesn't seem very sustainable. Are there more permanent long-term efforts in place to kind of contend with some of these housing crisis issues in the long term? So obviously this money, there's a hope to use the money for an immediate fix and second, start to really make some long-term planning. And that requires finding land and identifying spots in these communities where they can allow density and density in these in mountain towns has always been a controversial subject right like nobody wants apartments really or tall buildings in these mountain towns but these communities are coming around to the idea that that is pretty much the only way that they're going to fix this housing crisis because land is so expensive in these mountain valleys it's so hard to find what these communities are doing are really working with developers working with you know their stakeholders and people in the community to identify areas where they can build high-density housing, and sort of extraditing that high-density, maybe adjusting their zoning, maybe adjusting their codes to allow developers to move in and pretty quickly develop uh, high-density housing, for example, waiving sewer tax, waiving some of the fees for affordable housing. They're finding ways to really encourage developers to look at these mountain communities and develop something quickly and something that will really fit the needs of the community. Jason Blevins is a reporter following this issue for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to his story at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Monday marked the official start of summer, and that also means the start of summer road construction. CDOT officials say drivers in northern Colorado should expect lane shifts and temporary closures along Interstate 25. Construction manager Stephanie Granberg is asking the public to be patient and drive slowly. People don't like construction, and I get it, but just know that we're working, and you know, hopefully by uh, 2024 it'll all be open and um, everyone can breathe and it'll be safer, so it'll be good. Crews are adding tolled express lanes on I-25 from Fort Collins to Berthoud. The state is also building new bridges, new Bustang stops, and a tunnel to connect the Poudre River Trail between Fort Collins and Greeley. An unusual ceremony took place in Denver last Friday. A 102-year-old World War II veteran finally got the medals that he had earned but never received. KUNC military reporter Michael DeYoana has more. Underneath a shady tree at the Xavier Jesuit Center, a small group gathered around Edward Flaherty to hear about his experiences in the war. I think every moment in the military you were just praying for the end to come not knowing what you were going to be facing. The retired Catholic priest did not expect to discuss the war or expect the audience, including a congressman, a retired general, his colleagues, and a gaggle of camera-slinging journalists. He joked, If I'd known it was happening, I would not have stayed here. (laughs) Flaherty joined the Army just months before Japan's surprise attack at Pearl Harbor in 1941 that drew the U.S. into the war. He served in the Pacific Theater as a medical technician, rising to the rank of sergeant before leaving in 1945. Brother Glenn Kerfoot at the Jesuit Center wanted to see his colleague somehow honored. I wanted to do something for him regarding his military service, which I had seen uh, a similar service done for another gentleman. This was like 10 or 12 years ago. 
Kerfoot eventually got in touch with Congressman Ed Perlmutter's office and pitched the idea. Perlmutter was open to it, so his staff looked at Flaherty's records to see if anything had been overlooked. My office uh, has the ability to uh, do this kind of research through uh, the Defense Department and through the VA Mm -hmm. to track down, you know, records. The congressman was bowled over at what his staff discovered. It gave me goosebumps just like it's giving me goosebumps right now. It turns out that Flaherty earned many medals and honors, but never actually received them. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. After the pledge, Army Major General Stephen P. Best addressed Flaherty. I would like to say this is a timely presentation. It would depend on your definition of timely, but uh, (laughs) 75 years uh, later, we're finally uh, getting these in your, your possession. And it's becoming a rarer sight by the day. Of the 16 million Americans who served in World War II, roughly 300,000 are still alive, according to the Department of Veterans Affairs. We appreciate the uh, opportunity and the invitation to be a part of honoring one of, uh, one of the members of the greatest generation. For his part, Flaherty helped treat his fellow soldiers' wounds and assist with evacuations. Congressman Perlmutter asked him to turn to face the crowd and began listing the medals. The Army Good Conduct Medal was established in June 1941 and is awarded for exemplary behavior, efficiency, and fidelity in active federal military service. And medals for the defense of the country, the Pacific Campaign, and for victory in the war. Five medals in all, each pinned by the general to Ed Flaherty's shirt. I don't know. uh, I'm sure this has been said a million times by a million different veterans, but thank you. That's all I can say. Thank you. After the ceremony, Flaherty opened up a bit more with reporters. I never knew I had all those medals in my background, in my history. When asked about the war, he said it was about fighting the evils that the Axis empires, including Germany and Japan, had inflicted on the world. It was about safeguarding freedom. Flaherty went on to say that he is dismayed by the tone Americans take with each other today. He said there is too much violence and hatred and venom. I wish that the The spirit of our founding fathers is passed on to the younger generations coming along today because that's what our country needs, that spirit, that that, uh, moral strength. Otherwise, we'll collapse like all the empires in the history of the world. Flaherty has lived in Denver since the late 1960s, serving as a priest and educator until he retired in 2017. He is now preparing for his next chapter and will soon move to a care community in St. Louis. Michael DeOenna, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The world's largest meat company, JBS, settled a federal lawsuit over claims of discrimination against Muslim workers in its Greeley plant for $5.5 million last week. The suit, brought forth by the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission about a decade ago, 
alleged JBS failed to accommodate Muslim workers' religious need to pray and break fast during the holy month of Ramadan beginning in 2008, resulting in a pattern of discriminatory behavior. JBS fought the case the whole way through, partially arguing the religious accommodations would unreasonably hurt the company's productivity and disputing the discrimination claims as false. In 2018, a judge partly sided with JBS, ruling there was not enough evidence of a larger pattern of discrimination. But the judge did not rule on the individual discrimination claims or accommodation requirements. The EEOC could have still moved forward by trying cases for each individual employee or smaller groups of individual employees separately. Instead, the suit was settled. Here with us now to look back on the decade-long fight is 78-year-old Mohammed Mohammed, a former JBS employee who left the company during Ramadan 2008, and Nathan Foster, attorney for the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Nathan and Mohammed, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you. Thank you. Mohammed primarily speaks Somali, so you'll be hearing him through an interpreter. Back in 2008, Mohammed, you were a part of a committee chosen by Muslim workers at JBS to work with plant leadership to find a way to accommodate different break times so Muslim workers can pray and break their fast. Can you tell us about what happened during that Ramadan? Yes, uh, during Ramadan 2008, I was uh, a member of the committee that was uh, negotiating with the management for us to do our obligation, Ramadan fasting. And we have requested the management to give us some time to do our Ramadan and pray also at the same time. So I was a member of that committee, yes. How did that committee work with leadership and what sort of happened? Good yeah, the committee selected me to be their uh, spokesperson, and we've met with the management. Uh, we explain our situation uh, that uh, almost three, four hundred employees of uh, Somali origin and others would like to uh, do our religious obligations. So we need to fast, and we need to break our fast. And we requested them that to align with the breaks. Uh, we have two, three different breaks. Uh, at the beginning, they accepted and they said, okay, we will accommodate you and we'll give you time. Uh, we'll adjust the break time so you can break your fast and say your prayers. In a couple of days, next day, they said, no, everything is off the table. Uh, you need to work. If you don't want to work, it's up to you. Nathan, how does the experience we just heard compare to what you've heard from the other Muslim JBS workers that you represented in this case, especially people who worked there after Mohammed left in 2008? There are a couple of facts that help answer that. This case was split into by the court into a couple sets of claims. And the court uh, did go to a trial in 2017, largely centered on facts Uh, from 2008, when there were a large number of employees uh, who were fired or otherwise retaliated against after they were denied prayer accommodations during the month of the holy month of Ramadan. Uh, But there are also claims in the case that that have never been addressed. Different failures of religious accommodation uh, in later years uh, for continuing policies uh, that limited prayer breaks, 
including during Ramadan, and for a wide variety of, of pretty egregious harassment uh, based on religion, uh, based on race, based on national origin. So on the one hand, uh, there's a legal obligation for employers to provide reasonable accommodations so long as it's not an undue hardship so that employees can observe their religious faiths and beliefs within the reasonable bounds of their job. And in addition, there's a, a big harassment problem that occurred in this case where there were just egregious facts of Somali uh, and Muslim employees being subjected to racial slurs, F Muslims, F Somalis, use of the N-word orally and, and in graffiti in bathrooms, many reports of employees having meat and bones thrown at them. I, I spoke with a, a former employee who had meat forced in his mouth, uh, really just terrible levels of harassment. And so the, the case really involves both kinds of bad violations of the law in the EEOC's view, both religious discrimination and the, and the failure to meet that obligation to accommodate religious practices, and also really, really uh, upsetting kinds of harassment. Mohammed, I want to turn back to you and ask how your life has been affected by what happened at JBS in 2008 and, and the decade-long legal battle ever since. This was really a very difficult time uh, for me and my fellow uh, co-workers and immigrant Somalis. Uh, we have really endured a lot uh, in terms of uh, uh, maltreatment, abuse and discrimination while I was working there. And it has right now a lasting effect on me. I became very reserved. Uh, I've done different jobs uh, because that was really a shock to me. This was my first job when I arrived in the United States. I have a lot of hopes. I had a different perspective about America that I would be able to, to work and support my family. But uh, I've encountered uh, me and my other fellow uh, Somali immigrants, uh, a lot of uh, mistreatment and abuse. And that's why we have seeked the help of our attorney, Diane King, to uh, help us uh, uh, remedy our problems and, and the working conditions that the management put in place for us. What do you think about the decision to settle the case and the amount it was settled for? I believe uh, there's no price tag of what has happened to us uh, in terms of the harassment, discrimination, mistreatment. And I think you cannot put a dollar amount but on the other hand, uh, the settlement amount of five point something million uh, is a lot of money. And I believe that shows uh, JBS has realized uh, it has done something wrong. And I'm very excited that the case has been settled. And I hope uh, in the future, uh, the people who are behind me will be treated much better. And, and JBS will now oblige to take care of their employees equally and to treat them equally. And Nathan, same question to you. What is your perspective? Well, I echo what Mohammed said, that uh, there are certain kinds of, of harms, indignities, forcing people to choose between 
earning a livelihood and and having to you know in some way give up part of their religious beliefs that there's not a dollar figure in terms of you know the dollars here the parties negotiated for uh, many years and and the commission's very happy that we could uh, help get substantial relief into the hands of of hundreds of people who we we believe were were victims of discrimination and harassment in this case uh, and uh, and bring some relief to them at, at this time in a in a long-standing litigation we're very glad that there's non-monetary relief in addition to the the dollar payment there's uh, a negotiated agreement now entered as an order of the court that that JBS has to provide additional kinds of uh, protections that should, uh, we believe, we hope, uh, help reduce further problems in the future, guaranteeing access to spaces to observe religious beliefs, to pray, promises not to retaliate, an opportunity for those who were harmed in this case and participated in this case to have the opportunity to, to be considered to work at JBS again if they want to and other you know, policy review, other things that we hope will help this company to not discriminate further in the future. With this settlement, JBS does not admit any wrongdoing. What do you both think of that? Maybe we start with Mohammed and then Nathan. JBS can deny or they might say we just settled the case, uh, but we don't admit any wrongdoing. But the fact is that uh, this case has been going on for uh, almost 12 years. And I really appreciate the EOC and our attorney, Diane King, and other associate lawyers for pushing and fighting for us. It's maybe a face saving for them to say that uh, we settled the case, but we don't admit anything. But the facts are different and it's very clear. Uh, it went through the court. There were uh, trials and hearings and all of that is available. And, and also uh, the most important thing is that JPS will change uh, their ways of dealing with immigrant uh, employees. And that shows that something has happened and uh, there has to be a change. So that's that part. I'm very excited about it. For my part, I'd say we maintain our allegations and they deny and we agree to disagree. And that's in the normal nature of of resolving a lawsuit through a settlement decree or a negotiation. That's that's how it is. But we're we're glad that we were able to agree on the terms uh, that we did and provide the substantial relief that's in this uh, in this package of money and, and non-monetary terms that the courts now approved. What do you think are the broader implications of this case? It's a reminder that there are substantial issues of systemic kinds of harassment, systemic kinds of discrimination based on race, national origin, and religion that we are still wrestling with uh, in the United States. The reminder that we can be grateful. We have laws that prohibit those kinds of discrimination, but we need to remain vigilant to make sure they're not occurring and, and that the law is followed. When you think about the impact of this case, it's significant that for the majority of the employees affected here, it was their first job in the U.S. They came to the U.S., they had this experience, they were treated poorly, they were uh, forced to uh, make unfair choices between religious practice, they were called names, they were physically harassed, and that's a very jarring and damaging experience that 
that has really changed the perceptions and the, and the later work experiences for lots of these people. And that's a, a really sad fact about this case and, and a reason why we, we brought it and a reason why we're glad we got the result uh, that we've now obtained. Mohammed and Nathan, thank you both for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and thanks for your interest in our case. That was Mohammed Mohammed, former JBS employee, and Nathan Foster, attorney for the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We reached out to JBS for comment. They sent a statement which says in part, quote, JBS denies the allegations and unfounded claims of discrimination and harassment. The company chose to resolve the remaining claims to avoid the continued and prolonged distraction of defending this decade-old lawsuit. We are committed to diversity and inclusion in the workplace, prohibiting discrimination and harassment of any kind. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, our state is a global leader in preserving dark night skies, but preserving the night sky above the state's largest national park would require residents along the Front Range to pitch in. We'll have more on that tomorrow. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Alana Schreiber. We got additional production help from our colleague, Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.